Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. Today's guest worked in local radio for 30 years. Dan Barnett has been teaching philosophy at Butte College going on 30 years. Because he has been writing the weekly bibliophile book column for the Chico Enterprise Record for more than 34 years, I've invited him to the NSPR studios to tell us what books by local writers impressed him in 2022. Dan Barnett, welcome. Nancy, thank you. It's good to be back, I guess. How long have we been doing this? It's been years, right? Yes, it has been, Mm -hmm. and we're actually back in the studio, and I really enjoy looking back over the years' books because it's a shame they get on air once for the most part, and then... Oh, I, I wish people could, if they missed it, could hear that interview again. Yes. So I'm just real eager to hear what impressed you over this past year as far as local writers. Well, a couple of historians really impressed me, and you as well, I think. And Michelle Shover's uh, oh, yes. Chico's Chapman's was uh, an extraordinary, uh, not only work of research that took something like four decades to put together and finalize, but also an insight into the creation of Chico. And the focus was not on John Bidwell. It's usually on John Bidwell. And there's more going on. And what what Michelle does uh, so well is rather than simply list out facts and figures about um, Chapman's influence in Chico and how it developed and so on, Uh, She attempts to give you the sights and the sounds, the feel, the smells of Chico um, uh, early in its existence, and it draws the reader in. So there is a sense of historical perspective, but also the interesting interplay with John Bidwell and with Augustus Gus Chapman. And it was not always on the most friendly of terms. And yet they needed by exigency to work together politically at times, and they did so. But it was just fascinating how these characters really came alive, especially Gus Chapman. I totally agree with you. I was so impressed with the tremendous amount of research that she did and that she looked at uh, local newspapers and what they were writing at the time. And I really enjoyed her book so much. I practically retained, I read it slowly and carefully. I retained just about (laughs) everything she wrote. And even, I think people don't realize that the Chapman Mansion is just right off downtown Chico, just about. Mm -hmm. And so she very cordially invited Matt and me to her residence. She lives in the Chapman Mansion, and we were able to see that uh, when we interviewed Michelle, and she's a delightful person, and so is her assistant. So um, I, I think people will really be interested in, even if they're not history buffs, the personalities, as you were mentioning, yeah. and also the role of women. Women pretty much have been just ignored, <laughs> their, what they did and what their feelings were uh, in other sources. And I, I think people will get a kick out of her book on a lot of different levels. Gus Chapman was not always successful. And uh, he wanted to say at the very end that, uh, and this is the way uh, Michelle puts it, Uh, When Gus died, despite his many failures, only his creditors were aware of one point central to his honor. He had paid off every debt in full. He died owing no man. I was impressed by that also. Yes. And that's not something that the general public knew. They knew of his failures, a lot of them. Yep. Yeah. The... uh, other historian is my colleague at Butte College uh, in history, uh, Dylan Carroll, and he wrote a scholarly book called Invisible Wounds, Mental Illness and Civil War Soldiers. And 
Uh, it's quite an extraordinary book, and I think you were taken with it oh, as well. Oh, absolutely I was, because I grew up where the Civil War was taking place. I mean, I didn't even know, think about California during the Civil War, but I was growing up at a time when my great-grandfather fought for the Union, and when I read this book, I thought, wow, my great-grandfather was more of a hero than I thought, and some of the people that I was raised being told were heroes in the South were not heroes in my book now. So I really, um, let's again give the name of this book, The Invisible Wounds. Mental Illness and Civil War Soldiers. And by and, Dylan Carroll, yeah, your right. colleague. C-A-R-R-O-L-L. And, and the interesting thing is, uh, many things of interest, but of particular interest and focus is the question of trauma. Now, he's a historian, and so as I've talked with him, he said, I want to be very careful in not looking back to the Civil War era and subsequent times and make medical judgments because I can't do that. I can't really diagnose. However, one of the things that he tries to explore is how two soldiers on the battlefield seemingly faced with the same sort of traumatic situation one can come home and prosper, and the other can come home and simply have to be institutionalized. And there are huge mental institutions uh, in Washington, D.C. and in other places. And the fascinating thing is that some of those mental institutions um, saved all their records. And so Dylan could go back and look at all of the diagnoses and so forth. And so what is the difference? Can you identify factors that produce mental illness on the battlefield from those terrible surroundings, and yet other people seem to survive who did survive and thrive? How, how is that? And it's really interesting because he charts the rise of the early psychologists who were called alienists. And the alienists took mental illness to be a moral failure. And it's very interesting that, as Carol points out in, in his research, finds that family members understood the process way better than the alienist did. The alienists tend to say, well, you're just doing the wrong thing. You know, change your behavior. You've been, a, you've been a bad person for a while. Let's get fixed up this way. And families knew how deep this trauma actually went. And so even though he's very careful not to diagnose and not to ascribe PTSD to soldiers, um, the symptoms are very similar. My guest is Dan Barnett. He writes the weekly bibliophile column about books in the Chico Enterprise Record. And he has mentioned a couple of books that we both liked and were impressed by. Uh, we mentioned Michelle Shover and her, her very thoroughly researched book, Chico's Chapman's, The California Years, 1861 to 1899. And some of this history also is about that same period, with Invisible Wounds by a um, history professor at Butte College, and his name is uh, Dylan, 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 Carroll, Dylan right. Carroll, and the subtitle of Invisible Wounds, Mental Illness and Civil War Soldiers. So, Dan, what else do you have for us now after the history books? Well, uh, this year is, marks four years since the campfire, and uh, I did a roundup in one of my columns for the Chico Enterprise Record uh, looking at all of the campfire-related books that I had done. Oh, about, there are a lot of them. About yeah. 19 of them, and yeah. there's more that I'm discovering. And one of those books uh, was by, and this is her pen name, Dax Meredith, who actually survived the campfire. Um, she had to escape with a child um, uh, as the fire was raging. And uh, her book is Unpacking the Trauma, How to Heal and Create a Life You Love. And there are still years, and it never will go away, 
as people remember uh, even reading about it and not being in the fire, but being uh, remembering the smoke that filled the skies, uh, it seemed like, for months. And uh, those who had escaped, those who had family members whose houses uh, were burned, um, the, the sense of trauma that even now, years later, you, you hear the wind blow and the anxiety begins to rise. Um, you hear a siren and the anxiety begins to rise. And how do you cope with that? And so uh, the Dax Meredith book, Unpacking the Trauma, is one of some ex- several examples of um, those who have gone through this traumatic experience and tried to make sense of it all and put it together so that you're not constantly looking backward, but able to look forward. Well, Dan, I want to make a suggestion for listeners. They may have already realized, oh, I want a pencil and paper to write this out. Or nowadays people record things in their phones. So a couple of reasons to have pencil and paper handy, because I think they would be interested in some of these books if they have not are not familiar with the books you've mentioned. But also you have um, an opportunity for listeners And you can get Dan's weekly columns in your inbox by subscribing to a free newsletter. And uh, I'll remind people again uh, when we're done, a little farther along. And this website is barnetto.substack.com. And this is for a quick take on books, life, and learning from a Northern California philosopher. And Barnetto is spelled (laughs) B-A-R-N-E-T-T-O. And I don't know why I chose that name, but (laughs) barnetto.substack.com. And uh, it'll say, please subscribe once you connect up on the website, and it's free. And so each weekly column then will be sent to you in your inbox. Isn't that cool? I think that's very cool. So let me remind people, uh, this is Dan Barnett. He writes the weekly book column, Bibliophile for the Chico Enterprise Record. He's been doing that for more than 34 years. And he has just mentioned how you can get access to these columns uh, on your phone. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, book reviewer Dan Barnett. Now, um, and and also <laughs> that uh, you are a philosopher, you teach at Butte College. Um, now, you also, uh, philosophy is such an old discipline, but you have access to a lot of new technology, and I think you're kind of the go-to person at Butte College, aren't you? Um. Well, sort of. There, there are, shall we say, younger people who are also into a lot of the technology that's happening. Yeah, but, I often say, oh, golly, I really need a 10-year-old right now. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that connects up with writing is something that uh, probably uh, you, if you're listening to this now, you might be aware of something called Chat GPT. Uh, it's got a lot of publicity in um, uh, in late December, and what it is, and it's free, uh, it's an artificial intelligence chat bot. Bot means a kind of robot. 
only it's it's not just something that is fed Wikipedia uh, entry so that if you ask it a question like you might ask Google, you get this response back. But it is meant to be creative. And I'll give you an example. You can sign up for it at OpenAI. Uh, just put in chat bot, bot, uh, chat GP, uh, GPT um, in Google, and that'll direct you to the site. You can sign up for free, and a lot of people have been playing around with this. Uh, and let me give you an example. I asked, um, uh, I asked the AI uh, to create a sonnet about Nancy's bookshelf. And in a few seconds, here's what it sounded like. Nancy Wigman of KCHO here on the air, her show Nancy's Bookshelf, Always So Fair, interviews with authors both local and far, her listeners understand what she shares. <clears throat> to learn and to find all sorts of delight from literature, new writers come into sight. Dive into stories of every style. This show adds to our knowledge a mile. In art and in culture, we find seeds of truth, questions answered when Nancy, aloof, inspiring listeners with her insight, books are open for readers to delight. So let KCHO bring you culture and grace, and then it just stops. <laughs> and so I, I, I was puzzled. First I said, well, wait, why, you, why are you saying Nancy is aloof? And the AI said, Nancy offers a unique perspective on literature and culture that can be seen as, as distant or aloof. She's not always engaging with the audience in a direct way, but rather provides them with the knowledge and perspectives that come from her show. And then I wrote back, but she is engaging with the audience. <laughs> and so the AI responded, Absolutely. Nancy engages with her audience through the conversations she has with authors and through the thoughtful reflections on literature and culture she provides in her show. She is a great host that encourages her audience to explore new ideas and express their own opinions. And then I said, well, you didn't finish the sonnet. You just <laughs> left it hanging. And so the chatbot did finish. So let KCHO bring you culture and grace, this weekly show full of knowledge to embrace. Nancy Wigman, your host with a gallant face, her show will keep your reading taste. This is Dan Barnett reading a poem that he did not write. I did not write it. And uh, no, this, no human wrote it. And actually. this artificial intelligence doesn't know that. KCHO was uh, uh, kind of out of date. We are NSPR now. And uh, I know you've been uh, here in Chico for long enough to know it used to be KCHO. So just yes. I would add that footnote that we are NSPR. Well, the sign on the building says that. Ah, so, yes, you know. yes. <laughs> and, but it's really interesting because I also asked it to, uh, I said I teach philosophy at Bew College and please write me the first paragraph of <laughs> a murder mystery using Stephen King style or using um, uh, the, the famous mystery writer, Agatha Christie's style. And it did. And it's, it's quite extraordinary. And the question is, will writers be using it not just for writer's block, you know, write me something about X and then, oh, okay, that, that gets me started. Or will more and more some of the things that the artificial intelligence says find its way into published texts without attribution? And right now, everybody who's looking at, at open AI having lots of fun with this, and some of it's really humorous. The poetry isn't very good. I could ask it to do this uh, uh, sonnet in, in, um, in Shakespearean language and all of this sort of thing. But the, the darker side is 
Well, how do we know the difference between human creations and and artificial intelligence creations? And maybe even the more philosophical question is, does it really matter? Well, now, I have two reactions to this, Dan. One is, I'm thinking, okay, your students, uh, you assign your students some composition to write, and they get this written by artificial intelligence mm-hmm. or whatever course it is. The other thing is that um, you, uh, this artificial intelligence is accessible, uh, like I say, to students. But uh, what do you think would, um, would be any other uh, perhaps non-desirable use for it? Well, I can think of many in, in the propaganda wars. Uh, you, can, you can ask it, give me an argument uh, for X or give me an argument against so X. So debaters could prep for a debate. Exactly. Oh. And it will create fictional scenarios. So if I, if I say, um, describe the Battle of East Biggs against Chico <laughs> in 1843, uh, it will come out with... With something, it will make something up, and it sounds very authoritative because we're used to putting queries into Google and here's Wikipedia or some other source that seems to be authoritative. Let's go with that. And if the AI gives you details, uh, names, when I ask it to create a murder mystery first paragraph, it invented a name. Um, in order to be a foil for the mystery. And it sounds very authoritative. And so the question then of how to parse what it says, is this really true or really not true? So just as it can write a fictional story, it can give you fictional facts. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) <laughs> oh, so life just got a little bit more complicated, I think. And as as an instructor, uh, oftentimes it said, well, multiple choice questions, people can put those online. But if you ask a, a, an essay question more than just what do you think about this, but that draws on the material that you studied in class, then it's very much more difficult for a student to... Uh, plagiarize a source because it's so specific. Here, it gets really specific and sounds very authoritative. And so a student can still edit it and so forth, but my mind always goes to, wow, what happens when we can't really tell? Because you could ask it, please write this answer uh, at a third grade level or a seventh grade level or a graduate student level. And so it can vary vocabulary and levels and so forth. My guest is Dan Barnett, and he is a philosophy, uh, he teaches philosophy at Butte College, but he has been writing a weekly column, a book column, Bibliophile, for the Chico Enterprise Record for more than 34 years. That's 34 years. Years. Yes. Yes, Yes, I was five when I started. Yeah, that. Uh, yeah, we'll take that with a grain of salt. Um, so, this that you've been talking about is something you and I have been getting together for quite a few years mm-hmm. and taking a look back since I was five, I think. <laughs> yes. Um, but this is something that uh, I don't think is on many people's radar screen. This, uh, and you're calling it. Uh, they can access it by googling chat. GPT. GPT. Yeah. It's an artificial chatbot. Mm-hmm. Artificial intelligence. Yeah. Chatbot. And and it's free right now. And so anybody can uh, log in and create an account, free account, and, and then ask it questions. But we're used to, in up until now, just asking, well, when was X? Uh, who did Y? And now you can ask it in the style of create a poem. Uh, about Nancy's bookshelf. Which reminds me, um, I haven't really officially invited, but I'm hoping that members of the community 
would be motivated to write a poem and uh, let me know they've written a poem because I would like to have a few minutes at the end of a show for local poets to uh, share their work with us. Mm -hmm. So now I'm thinking, okay, Mm -hmm. people out there won't really have an excuse not to submit a poem. (laughs) You can have it written for you. (laughs) And it's it's yours, I guess, uh, because this is a unique creation that the artificial intelligence doesn't give you a John Donne poem, but you can say, please write uh, about my NSPR and Nancy's bookshelf uh, in the style of John Donne, and it'll do it. Not very well, but it'll do it. Again, my guest is Dan Barnett, and he writes the bibliophile column for the Chico Enterprise Record, and he and I like to get together at the end of the year to look back at books This is a little bit off the subject of our purpose today. But it's about writing. It is. It is about writing, and and we like to look back at local authors who have uh, published books during this past year. And uh, uh, Jan uh, 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 Dysard, I think his name is is Dysard, um, and Mary Zeiss Stang, both academics, uh, wrote uh, and published a book through MIT Press called Hunting, A Cultural History. And Jan recently moved to Chico. And so this is uh, very interesting. It's published by MIT Press. MIT Press has a series with hundreds of books now on a called essential information. And this is about hunting, how it may have started. And remember the cave paintings? You know, when you and I were young, we'd go out to the <laughs> Altamira cave paintings. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's Uncle George who did that. Um, and, and what hunting has meant. And it's very interesting because it, it brings a kind of feminist perspective into the question of hunting. It is often the case that we think of um, prehistoric hunters as hunter-gatherers, and the males would go hunting and the females would, would stay at home, and there's a much more complex history that, uh, that we now understand about how hunting developed. But then toward the latter part of the book, there's really an emphasis on uh, the 19th and 20th centuries, the rise of the conservation movement, and that was spurred in large part by hunters. And then the rise of the environmental movement, which oftentimes was at issue with hunters, because hunting involves killing stuff. And so uh, what Stang and Dysert are are trying to suggest is that hunting is a good thing when it is fair, and that means that if you have a computerized rifle and you're 2,500 feet away and the animal can't has, has no way to know that you're there and there's a, a laser bead on the animal's head and you can kill it that way, that's not fair. But if it's a fair hunt, that is better for environmentalism, that is better for hunting um, together, and better for really managing the wildlife population. What's happened, says Dysart, and, and I hadn't realized this, that of course, as humans have encroached on the territory of wild animals, At the same time, the environmental and conservation movements have increased the number of wild animals. So uh, the white-tailed deer population in many places um, is eating itself to death, literally, because the land can't support that many deer. And so what the authors are suggesting is that hunting is better for all concerned Uh, because it thins the population and allows the remaining deer to survive. Otherwise, the deer get hit by automobiles. Um, And if hunting is so frowned upon, they say, that it becomes a place where, well, you just have to go to a hunting reserve. 
and you pay your, your money and then you can do your hunting, but it's really not for the general public. As that has happened and as you have this burgeoning population, then inevitably you lead the thinning of the population to exterminators. And I, I read that and I thought, wow, I'd never have thought of it that way. And so there's the stereotype of the thrill of the hunt and the kind of bloodlust that hunters have. And presumably we're human. There is some of that. But in a fair hunt, um, there is a sense where Dysart says in ancient times and even in a more secular way in modern times, there is a kind of ritual associated with hunting that the hunter had to be prepared to kill an animal, which was normally not thing that, that you relished or that, that was done. There's a rite of passage that you go through. And it's not a bloodlust sort of thing, but it's honoring the animal even as the animal gives up its life um, for really the, the circle of life. And I hadn't thought of it that way because Dysart said that getting licenses, uh, being trained as a hunter and so forth, um, actually is this kind of rite of passage. But he says that more and more what's happening as hunting is falling on hard times, um, uh, then the uh, parents are not passing it along to their children. And so then the hunting is left to this small group of people. And that should be something that environmentalists might say, well, wait a minute, maybe there's a better way. So it's, it was very interesting. Um, the only hunting I ever do is hunting for my hat. I often <laughs> misplace it. <clears throat> well, <that> keys. <laughs> yes, and, and my keys. Fortunately, my phone can tell me if I use my iPad. Yes, tell me where that's my right. Missing phone is. But I, I thought that that was... Um, uh, an interesting take, a cultural, uh, not so much what it feels like to hunt, a little bit of that in the book, but really a cultural history and a suggestion in, from both authors that um, hunting is something that's very important to preserve the environment. And I hadn't quite thought of it that way. My guest is uh, bibliophile and philosopher Dan Barnett. After a break, Dan and I will be back to continue our conversation about the local writers who impressed us in 2022. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, columnist Dan Barnett, who writes the Bibliophile book column for the Chico Enterprise Record. And we're taking a look back at the books by local authors in 2022. What else do you have for us, Dan? Well, um, as you'll be talking with the author of Sleeping with Strangers, an Airbnb host, Life in the Lake Tahoe and Mexico area. Um, but I thought that was really a fascinating story, uh, an inside story about what it means as Airbnb was becoming established and setting up its rules or not setting up its rules and what it meant uh, for, uh, for uh, 
for the entrepreneurial spirit of Airbnb, but also for those who rented out their their headquarters or uh, their rooms. And and it was really fascinating um, because uh, Kay Reed uh, did this, uh, needed the money, and so she was a single woman with a dog and invited someone to come into her main bedroom. And so she kind of, uh, not kind of, but actually had to hole up in, Relinquished in the room. guest bedroom. Yeah. And so all of the sorts of odd things that happen. Uh, nothing bizarre so much as the, the uh, changes that you had to make in your mental view of who these strangers were because they were coming into your own space and using your stuff. And the idea of, yes, I'm making some money from this, but but who are these people? <laughs> and as Airbnb began to be established, then you could rate not only the clientele, but the clientele could rate um, uh, those who were renting out their rooms and, and homes. So um, that was kind of an entrepreneurial spirit on, on Kay Reed's part. And then another book is Trek Tales, A Woman's Journey of Self-Discovery, Packing Llamas By the way, in the California did, Wilderness. Excuse me, but to go back to the previous book, did you yes. give the title of Kay Reed's book, Catherine yeah. Reed? Yeah, Sleeping with Strangers. Sleeping with Strangers. Right, okay. and, and get your mind out of the gutter. It's, <laughs> they're in another room. But it's a very strange thing to hear noises from strangers in another room. Yes. Okay. And so uh, former Paradise resident Donna Dolinar, um, uh, she lives in Baja, Mexico, in a little fishing village now, and then uh, in the Tahoe National Forest. But for a long time, uh, she trekked and had excursions with llamas. And so here's another a woman who's doing something entrepreneurial and just having really a, a great time uh, uh, with cargo-carrying llamas. <laughs> and apparently they spit. Did you oh, know they that? Do, uh, yeah, I, because I lived a year in Peru, and you see a lot of llamas go up in the Andes, and there are llamas there, and I didn't want to get too close. And they they will not carry a heavy load, <laughs> small pack, but they uh, they are kind of scary creature uh, creatures to me. Yeah, and and you think well, llamas are you know you see them with goats out out. Yeah, in, and they're not in, in very big. And, and, yeah, they're yeah. very sweet and so forth. Um, they can have a temper. Yep. And and just like uh, I think of the donkey derby, sometimes the donkey just <laughs> mm, I'm not going to do that. And llamas are like that too. <laughs> Uh, but she became Mama Llama, of course. Uh, but I thought that was absolutely fascinating how uh, here you are in, in paradise. This is before the fire. And, well, what can we do? Oh, I know. Let's, let's raise llamas or at least have llamas, not raise them so much as, as then take them on hikes and expeditions. And we'll charge some money and we can have a great time. Uh, so I thought that was. Um, that you know, was I'm wondering that it occurs to me too because uh, the Camino, the pilgrimage that goes across Spain, uh, quite a few pilgrims uh, travel with donkeys. I'd say quite yeah, a few, but yeah. it's not unusual for somebody to mm -hmm. have a companion donkey with them. But I'm thinking people might get the idea oh, maybe a companion llama to yes. walk the Camino. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And as you say, they will carry some weight, but very little. Do yes. not load them up. No, <laughs> not 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 nice. But you get really attached to the llamas, and there's some kind of heartbreaking stories when um, some of them get old, uh, and what happens. Um, but I I thought it was just wonderful. What a story of of that you can tell um, grandchildren. <laughs> 
My guest is Dan Barnett. He writes the weekly bibliophile book column for the Chico Enterprise Record. He also teaches philosophy at Butte College, and he is giving us his impressions of the uh, books and authors from this past year, 2022. One of the novels that, that really stuck with me uh, was written by uh, Ridge Area writer Brian T. Marshall, and it's called A Stone Bled Dry. A Stone Bled Dry. And it takes place in Alturas, of all places. And uh, Brian wrote me and said that he had this, this man, Jack Jenkins, an old coot, kind of self-described, uh, in his mind. And he has a past. And Alturas is, is not a megaplex. It is not <laughs> where the population is. And that suited Jack just fine. Uh, in a stone bled dry. And so he's been anonymous. He's kind of living by his, his self, himself, <laughs> without a grammar checker. See, <laughs> it works great at doing odd jobs, painting, uh, doing painting and just anything. Um, he knows pretty much everybody in town. Um, he lived in your uh, this is a quote from the book, your standard double wide laid up on cinder blocks with worn cedar steps leading to the front door and an illegal stove in the den. Can you just picture that? Um, but then everything begins to change, of course. Then you have a novel and um, someone comes into his life um, that changes him, 14-year-old Jewel. Um, and... Uh, quite extraordinary um, as you see this man begin to open up but it is not a saccharine kind of story of uh, the interplay sometimes sarcastic back and forth as Jack is trying to figure out what is a 14 year old interested in um, and and so this is his granddaughter and what what do you do and so he's talking with um, a, a widower retired from Chico State named Phil in this novel. And he says, her mom, our daughter, died when she was just a baby. We got stuck raising her. We got stuck raising her. That's Jack's mindset. Yet when Jewel arrives, a beauty blossoming into womanhood, Jack realizes she is a version of himself, another chance to get things right. And Brian's, uh, he's written uh, uh, several other novels, but this is a, a realistic novel. Um, uh, his previous novels, there's a lot of mythology connected with it. This is really a, a fairly straightforward uh, novel, but his use of words draws you into Jack's life and in, really into his mind. Um, and what does it mean to develop this love for your granddaughter, even as she develops a love for her grandfather, uh, when um, some really difficult things begin to happen? And so I, I just was uh, very much enamored of the way Brian um, uses the language um, that 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 just draws you in and you just feel it emotionally uh, as Jack begins to change. So again, it's not a sugary, saccharine kind of opening up like, ah, everything's fine. Everything is not fine. But what does that mean? I, you just hit on something that um, when I'm reading, I enjoy that something evokes an emotional reaction, yeah. whether it's laughter, whether it's tears. I just get so into the story. And for the amount of reading I do, I really read quite slowly. I'm a slow reader. So am I. <laughs> One reason is because if, if there's a lot of dialogue, I'm reading it at the pace <laughs> that people speak. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, so it's kind of reassuring to hear that you also are a slow reader, right. Dan. And the, one of the side benefits of reading uh, is a few days after I finished reading Brian's book, uh, I was at Butte College and I sat next to uh, someone who was working for the school. And I said, where are you from? And he said, Alturas. <laughs> 
And I said, oh, yes, I know all about Altaurus. Yes, I can tell you about this, that, and the other. And he looked at me like, how do you know these things? And it was a wonderful conversation. And um, I, I thank Brian for uh, opening up that possibility of that conversation because he gave me some words, some vocabulary, some ways of thinking about Main Street. He said, there's no rush hour because wherever you're going <laughs> is the same as where you've been, you know. And, and it was wonderful. And as I was talking with this, this person at, at Butte College, he said, yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. So it was great. So see, that's a side benefit of reading. My guest is Dan Barnett, and he's telling us about the books in this past year, 2022, that impressed him, and the fact that um, we don't have time to talk about all the books that are worthy. It's not that we're picking out and uh, leaving out books that we wouldn't love to talk about, but given that we have limited time, what other book would you like to uh, This mention? isn't a three-hour show? <laughs> oh. Well, there was a couple of books about running. And yes. one of them is, is Toe the Mark, and this is uh, Dave Brune, really a, an exhaustive history of running at Chico State and Chico High and, uh, and, and Pleasant Valley High in the 70s. And it's amazing. <laughs> well, he has some very interesting stories of uh, what the Las Plumas team did one time to the uh, cross-country team uh, from Chico. Uh, you can read the book to find out about that story. But coaches and runners, and it's really an extraordinary compilation. So uh, uh, it's a fact book, and you see year by year how these running programs developed and uh, uh, where the players, how they placed and where they are. Uh, you know so what, Dan? Um, when I was reading this book, I would read about a woman that, oh, I, I knew her as a tennis player. I didn't know if she was a runner. Really? Or uh, Pat Haley. I knew him in martial arts, but <laughs> I didn't know he was a runner. Or Don Ritchie. I knew he was a dermatologist, but I didn't know he was a runner. Or uh, the vice mayor, a really nice guy who died just as this book came out. And so for me, I would turn the page and say, oh, I know that person as they are now, and they were all very <laughs> successful in some endeavor that didn't uh, involve running. Yeah, yeah. And, and the fact that this now is out there as history and, oh, for, for more people who can bring these uh, corners of history. And, you know, it's not a small corner. It's a big corner, but it's a corner of history. And, and with Michelle, with Chico's Chapman's, and we have the running program, and we have other local historians who are bringing, um, really bringing history to light that we may have forgotten or may not have seen the context for, uh, absolutely invaluable. Well, another example, uh, I know this young woman, and her last name is Krasinski, but I didn't think about the fact that, well, she's tall and slender. She's very slender. She has the body of a runner, but it didn't dawn on me mm -hmm. that she was the daughter of runners and athletes. So this is another thing. It just it uh, broadened my, my view in so many ways, reading this book about runners in the 70s. Yeah. You might give the name and the title again, Dan. Right. And it's called Toe the Mark, and it's by Dave Brun, B-R-U-H-N, uh, again about the running programs uh, in Chico uh, in the 70s. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And, and then kind of a companion volume is uh, um, uh, the victory lap, Jack Yerman and his incredible journey to the Olympics and beyond. Um, and the Paradise Post is quoted in the book uh, from 1984, said that uh, Jack Yerman is only one of 155 living Americans who earned the Olympic gold medal. Yerman's great moment in sports came in the summer of 1960 in the Rome Olympics when he helped the U.S. mile relay team beat Germany for the gold. 
For the record, Yerman ran the then-fastest first leg in Olympic history, 46-2. And this book is written by his son, Bruce Yerman. Yep. And his dad, this Olympian, was born right here in Oroville. Mm -hmm. It became this tremendous Olympian. Um, Anything else you want to say, Dan? Because this is probably the last book we'll have a chance to talk about. Anything else you want to say about Bruce Yerman's book? Well, his first leg uh, was 46-2. And then 10 years later in 1970 at the Gold Nugget Donkey Derby, (laughs) he got a 49. (laughs) And that wasn't seconds, friends. That was minutes (laughs) with a donkey named Little Jack. (laughs) And the next year, in fact, he won with silver, celebrating with some with sons uh, Bruce and Bryce, and his beloved wife Margot, who carried month-old Blake. Uh, I mean, what a story! What a story! Yeah, it's interesting that these two books came out about this this same year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I interviewed uh, someone who wrote a book about synchronicities and coincidences, and I find, yeah, that's the way it seems to work. I'll get history books, a clump of history books or um, uh, physicists' books, and in this case, two books about running. Nancy, it's the zeitgeist. (laughs) That's what they call it, the zeitgeist. It'll get you every time. (laughs) You're absolutely right. There's one other author I might mention that had a new book out this year, and the first book I read was nonfiction uh, about World War II. This is Mike Paul. He wrote a nonfiction book first, And then he turned his attention, he's a retired dentist, by the way, and pilot. He turned his attention to fiction writing, and he wrote mystery thrillers. So anything you'd like to add before we wrap up here about his books? One one of them is She's Missing. And uh, as you say, he's a retired dentist. He's also a licensed pilot. And and so the whole premise is you got to follow the money. And so she's missing. It's a follow-up to his story, missing. As really interesting as I as I wrote that in my calendar, I, you know, I write she's missing, and I what what really? <laughs> oh no, that's the title of the book. Um, and so it's 2010, and uh, good old Coop, our hero, feels an ur- uh, an urgent call from Zoe's domestic partner Lara Graf, calling from Cyprus. And there is trouble because Zoe has disappeared. And on that note, I will thank my guest and remind you that if you want to get more of these columns, because we barely scratched the surface of some wonderful books this past year, but you can get Dan's weekly columns in your inbox by subscribing to his free newsletter at barnetto.substack.com. Dot com. It makes me smile whenever I say that. <laughs> and it does me too. Thank you, Dan Barnett. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.